0: we're starting a brand new series during the month of July. And if you, normally you come here and pastor Terry is teaching and you're disappointed, I join you in your disappointment. I'm so sorry. I really am. But he had asked months ago, he's like, you know what? I've not done this before, but I think I'll take July off, uh, from teaching the Wednesday night. And if you would take it, that'd be great. And so I will be teaching the next two weeks And then Dr. Cliff Sanders, and some of you may or may not know Dr. Sanders. He's an excellent teacher. He teaches one of our biggest Sunday school classes in room 250 on Sundays at 9.30. Uh, He recently retired from Mid-America Christian University and he is a gifted communicator and loves the scriptures. And so Cliff and I will be sharing this series. I'll do these two weeks and then he'll do the next two weeks. And this series, when he and I, Cliff and I, sat down to talk about this series, we thought, how fun would it be to talk about just some maybe somewhat popular passages of Scripture? And if you, as we explore these, if you know these passages and you go, ah, yeah, I see why you call them familiar, great. And for many people who are fairly new to the Scriptures, they might go, that's not familiar to me at all. Or maybe you've brushed into it a time or two. And it's okay, whether or not you're familiar or whether it's all new to you, we'll have fun together as we explore this series called Out of Context. And the idea is that Cliff and I have each identified four different primary passages, and we're gonna teach through those passages, but we're gonna explore both the popularity of the passage in its various contexts, but we're also going to explore the context. Because so often there are people who mean well, but but behave badly with scripture, mostly on Facebook. But they will quote a scripture verse and if they actually read it in the context, it it may mean something different. Okay, so with that being said, it's always important to define some terms and we should define the term context right away. Context is actually a, a, a Latin combination word. Con. If you're if you actually speak Spanish, you already know what con means because it is the same in Latin and Espanol. Con means with. So if you ever have chili con queso, you're having something with cheese. And you put anything on cheese, you've just made it better, right? So con is with and The text is actually woven or fabric, like the word textile, but in the early days, that was the sheets that things were written on. And so that's why today we even refer to the written text as text, but actually in the old Latin, it described the page the thing was on. So the idea of with the page or means in the whole, so you're seeing the thing all together, that's context. And so it's a noun, it means the, it can mean two different things. The circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. In other words, without the context, maybe you'll get part of the meaning. Maybe you'll get the wrong meaning. But if you look at it in all of this, so the example is the decision was taken within the context of plan cuts and spending. Or the other, and this is from Oxford Dictionary, by the way, in case you're curious, is the parts of something written or spoken that immediately precede and follow a word or passage and clarify its meaning. So really what we're gonna do tonight and what we're gonna do for the next four weeks is we're looking at both of those things. We're gonna put both of those things together as we explore this idea. So let me illustrate. This is not gonna be the primary text that we are going to use in our talk tonight, but this is just one as a very quick and simple example. How many of you like Christmas? I love Christmas. How can you not love Christmas? So there's a verse that on Christmas Eve services, you probably have heard a time or two. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the only reason that sentence isn't confusing is because you've heard it over and over again if you've been to a Christmas Eve service and somebody in there told you that the word isn't a word, but the word is the word meaning Jesus, right? When I was a young lad of like 11, 12, 13 to score brownie points with the youth pastor, truly that's probably why I asked them this question, I said, I think I should read the Bible, where should I begin? because I can't really imagine why at 11 I would have asked that question. But I asked the youth pastor, Pastor Ron, and he said, start with the Gospel of John. And so I went home and in my little King James Bible, I opened it up and there was that verse. Now the verse I just read is in the NIV, but I remember at 11 years of age going, what word? I don't get it. A word is a word. So how can a word be with, like was God playing vocabulary games? What, did he have a dictionary with him? What word is this about? And so as a kid, as 11-year-old, I'm not making this up. I shut it because I was so confused. And for some of you, you can relate to that story. You've read something in the Bible and you got confused. And because of your confusion, you're like, I think I'll put this down for a different day. But looking at this verse in its context, what we see is it says that He was with, in other words, the word was with God in the beginning, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if you continue reading, it's obvious that John, who wrote this gospel, is referring to Jesus. So in the beginning was the son of God, and the son of God was with God and the son of God was God. So it tells us something about Jesus. And it, it also, the extra context, illuminates us with some of the things that Jesus contributed in the creation account that he was somehow the conduit in through him. All things have been made. So he wasn't just like sort of an observer as God the father made. He didn't sit back and go, "What? whoa, that's some good stuff. He was integral in the whole creating process. So this is an example why context matters. You take one verse, it's very confusing. You look around and it's a little less confusing. And so with that, I want us to do, we're gonna, where we have a few goals that we're going to um, have for this series. We wanna have a little bit of fun. I have a sense of humor. Sometimes it's on point. Sometimes it misses altogether. And only you will know at any given moment, whether it's fun or not fun. I think it's all fun. Cliff also has a good sense of humor. It's different, but we want to have fun in this. We want to learn something about the biblical text. Every week we're going to take a passage of scripture and we're going to unpack it using principles and tips along the way. And we also want to learn how to study the Bible, not just how to read the Bible. I read the Bible, not just because I'm a pastor, but because I follow God and That's a good habit for a follower of God to be in is reading the Bible every day. My day starts with a cup of coffee and I go through a Bible reading plan. So I read through the whole Bible in any given year. Now I'm not showing off, I'm just sharing. That's my personal habit. It took me years to get to the point where I really enjoy that process. I will be honest, there were years where I'm like, I'm doing this because someone told me I should but I do it because I enjoy it now, but I don't always study what I read. Sometimes I just read it and let it flow through. But we're gonna talk about how to study the biblical text. And then what we wanna do for all of us watching online in this room is increase your comfort and confidence with the Bible. Because most of us, if we were honest and nobody was listening in, we'd go, "I, I get into this thing and I'm a little uncomfortable with how things are laid out or what to make of this. And so we're not gonna answer every question. This isn't comprehensive, but in the process, you'll come away with a few tips and tools. So are we ready to begin with this? All right, let's do it. Show of hands, how many of you been to a wedding? A wedding at some point should be every hand. If you're online, raise your hand. All of us have been inflicted with a wedding. I mean, sorry, we've all been present at a wedding before. Sometimes we've been inflicted by a wedding, right? Sometimes you've gone and you're like, I don't even like them. I'm not even sure why I'm there. And uh, sometimes you're like, I love them and I still don't want to be here. And sometimes you're at the ceremony and you're like, you know, everyone's crying because it's probably not going to last. You know, there's all kinds of reasons we show up at weddings, but at weddings, they're one of the chief abusers of the Bible. At a wedding, there are many, 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 many times where a Bible verse sounded good to the bride or the groom or the mom of the bride and it gets chosen and there are moments, if you know more about the verse, there's a little cringe. And so the verse that we're going to explore is a verse that some of you, this might even be a life verse. So I don't want to offend. We're gonna explore this together. This verse sometimes gets read at weddings. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. And every now and then you get the bonus extra verses with it. And it goes like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray with me and I'll listen to you and you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And can't you see why that's a beautiful verse to read at a wedding? I mean, the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, and today at your wedding is one of the plans, and they're good plans. They are to prosper you, and I love the idea of prosperity. I don't love the idea of austerity. If you have a choice between being austere or prosperous, you will choose prosperous unless you have some sort of emotional issue, right? Because prosperity sounds fantastic. I mean, that verse wouldn't be read at a wedding if it said, I know the plans I have for you and times are gonna be tough. That verse probably, I mean, honestly, it should, if the verse read that way, it should be read at your wedding. Because anyone who's been married realizes there's good days and not as good days, right? And so people like it. You know, they like this verse that God will be near and so what we're going to do we're going to look at a principle today and our principle is this that a verse can be broadly applied meaning when you get to the point where you're applying a bible passage or section you can apply it to many different relationships many different contexts There are certain stories in the Bible that can be applied to children and senior adults and middle-aged people, men and women. It can be applied in a working environment, in your home environment, in one of those awful HOAs. I only say that because I served on a board once and that's why I left Kentucky and moved to California, just to get away from the HOA. And so my therapist tells me that eventually I'll have worked through that issue but you should not broadly interpret the passage now catch the difference here when you're reading the bible there is an interpretation of the bible one interpretation of the bible but when you get to the application it could be applied to many 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 things many spaces and so the interpretation is narrowed to the author's intent or the author's purpose it's narrowed to the original, what the original readers understood. All the Bible is written by a person. There's many different contributing authors to the Bible. But that author had a purpose, a calling, was moved by the spirit to write something for a particular reason. And then the people that read that, they had an understanding of that. And there, it all takes place in a historical time period and a geographical time period as well as the general genre of the book. All of these contribute to the interpretation of the passage. So again, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans that will prosper and not harm you. And so as we explore this, let's look at the first tip. And the first tip is that if you want to understand what the context of a verse is, particularly this verse, it's very helpful to read the verses around that. In other words, you might read the, prior or the following verses you might read a whole chapter if you have time it's always recommended to read the whole book now some books like isaiah very long jeremiah long some books like jude very short so sometimes it's easy to read the whole book and sometimes it's a commitment to read the whole book but it's always good to read the whole book and so if we do this if we take this tip into account we now are familiar with this passage of all these wonderful things the lord says And so here's the prior verses starting just at the beginning of chapter 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles into the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's a mouthful. It's dear friends who are in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar hauled you away into exile. And here's the historical time period. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, Jehoiakim's mom, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, artisans, basically anyone who had a skill set, they also were deported. And he, Jeremiah, entrusted this letter to Elsa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamara and a bunch of other names in here too. And I wanna pause for a minute. I'm in enough Bible studies or been in enough classes when people start to read Bible names in cities and they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm saying this right. I wanna comfort everyone. No one is saying the name right. Nobody living today knows how to say any of these names. So give it your best shot. It's good enough language migrates over time. All you have to do is hear a recording in English from the United States from 60, 70 years ago. And you realize we don't sound like that anymore. We sound different today. In 60, 70 years from now, it'll be different yet. So nobody living is gonna fact check you. And if anyone corrects your pronunciation, just give them a look. Just kind of like, oh please, how would you know? It's very Christian to approach people in a Bible study that way. <laughs> and so, uh, so then he goes on. He says, this is what the, all, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried away to the, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here he goes. Build your houses and settle down. Quit living out of your suitcases, in other words. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. You're going to be here for a while. Marry and have sons and daughters. Don't wait. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters because you need some grandkids to look after you. Increase in number there. Don't, Don't decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Babylon, who just torched your city, pray for their peace and prosperity so you will prosper too. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let Do not let the prophets and diviners among you because in every community, there's always religious people who would tell you what you wanna hear. Sometimes they'll do it for money and sometimes they'll do it because they wanna be popular and sometimes they'll do it just because they're corrupt. There's always, always people out there that will tell you and tickle your ear and Jeremiah in his day was no different. He said, there are people there who are telling you you're gonna end up, keep your suitcases because you're coming back. Guess what? That's not happening. Do not let them deceive you. Do not listen to the, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. So like the people are like, hey, 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 um, minister, tell me again how everything is going to be okay. And then the minister would be like, yeah, okay, I'll tell you everything's going to be okay. And Jeremiah's like, don't, don't even put that on those people. I have not sent them. Declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says: When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I'll come. Whoa. In seven decades, 70 years, so this is why it's important for your kids to get married and have grandkids because you're gonna be buried there. Pick out, you know, do your funeral arrangements now, he says, and I will, after 70 years, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a future, even though you're gonna probably die in Babylon, part of your future is you, you could enjoy life in Babylon. Now this is a profoundly comforting passage when we read it in its context. And when we take it out of its context, it can sometimes do strange cartwheels. It's not that it doesn't fit it's just not the best fit for it. And so again, tip number one is read the verses around the verse in the chapter and in the, in the whole book. Okay. Tip number two, pay attention to names, places, dates, and other details. So when you start to read a text, does it mention a name? Does it mention a place? Does it give you any cues or clues to what's happening in the world around at that time? so that you can do some exploration. So we, all we have to do is go back to the first couple of verses of chapter 29. This is the text of the letter of the prophet Jeremiah, which by the way, being prophet Jeremiah in his text, it makes him prophetic, it makes him a prophet, which also tells us this is prophetic literature. So prophetic literature is a mixture. It's, I grew up thinking all prophecy was future telling, it's not. Some prophecy is telling you the future and Jeremiah does that. And some prophecy is just to stomp on your toes and make you uncomfortable and tell you to quit it. That's a big part of the prophetic ministry of the prophets. They would regularly confront careless people. Now, just, just a quick show of hands. How many of you love it when you're confronted for something you've done wrong? There's very few hands in the room right now. It's funny, and no one's got their hand up at home, even though no one's looking. Nobody likes that experience. So the prophets weren't particularly popular. They were popular long after their death, but in their life, very unpopular role. So Jeremiah, we know, and then he mentions Nebuchadnezzar, And that's a historical figure that you can explore, and there's all kinds of historical references to Nebuchadnezzar outside of the Bible. There's King Jehoiakim, and there's mention of the queen mother, and court officials, and all these other. And so I just want to skim through. This is Jeremiah. I want us to bump over to 2 Kings. This is the 23rd chapter of 2 Kings. So in this 23rd chapter of 2 Kings, this is towards the tail end of the monarchy in judah and it says Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king 18 years old back then you just inherited the throne which wasn't always a good idea and at 18 years of age he reigned and he reigned in jerusalem a whopping three months great leader his mother's name she's the queen mother that was just referenced in jeremiah and it tells us a little bit and at that time the officers of nebuchadnezzar king of babylon advanced in verse 10 on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Nebuchadnezzar himself came up and he ended up sealing the deal. So Jehoiakim surrenders, his mom surrenders, attendants, nobles, officials surrender. And so it says that in the eighth year of the reign of King of Babylon, he's less than a decade into his reign, he took Jehoiakim prisoner and a bunch of other things from the temple and the royal palace. And he carried off all these people, the skilled workers, artisans, 10,000 people A total of ten thousand people. Only the poorest people were left, and so Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylonia. He also took from Jerusalem all the king, the king's mother, the the queen mother, and his wives and officials and all these other people. And so, what we learn is that Jehoiakim is, and if you look and continue reading, he's the next to the last king of Judah. And he is carted off. And so, Jeremiah, by referencing Jehoiakim, tells us both time, he tells us some place issues. Going back again, you have uh, Jeremiah mentioned and Nebuchadnezzar. So, one of the questions that would be an obvious question is okay, so how do we learn about these people? What are some of the resources that we could have that are accessible to all people? Maybe you might have to make a purchase or maybe it's stuff that's available for free. And so I just recommend a handful of resources. It, it, these are just some things that, um, some of which come very cheaply, Bible dictionaries and Bible handbooks. You can get them on eBay for five bucks used. You can sometimes go into a used bookstore like the Salvation Army has a large section of used books and you can find some of these things, Haley's Bible handbook. And it'll tell you little snippets about these people. It's not exhaustive, but it's pretty good stuff. Bible dictionaries as well will explain some of the terms that are being used or some of the places that are being used. There's Bible commentaries. Those commentaries range from something anyone could use to more complex and require maybe some understanding of the old languages. They range in price from 5 bucks to 150 to $200 each. Those commentaries will be commentaries on maybe a section of the Bible or one book of the Bible. I, For my sermon over the weekend, I had purchased a brand new Galatians commentary that was 600 pages plus on five chapters in Galatians. Now, most people wouldn't wanna own it, wouldn't buy it. It was helpful to me. You don't have to do that. You could buy a $5 William Barclay commentary off of eBay and you'll get a used copy, but it'll be good. Or there's atlases and maps, there's reference Bibles. There's a lot of these things that are available online. There's concordances, there's Google, there's Wikipedia. A concordance, by the way, is every word that's in the English Bible and where it is found elsewhere. So it's a neat resource, and some of those are free online, and some of those concordances are also um, available very cheap because they've made them for years and years. There's a, a couple of resources I didn't write. One is Blue Letter Bible. That's a website you can go and there's just a massive amount of free stuff. There's one I use called net.bible.org N-E-T and that also has lots of free resources. Now, I also use a resource like Wikipedia. When I encounter a name like Nebuchadnezzar, I look it up on Wikipedia. And there's mixed attitudes about Wikipedia because it's what's called an open source. You don't need any credential to add things to Wikipedia. You just need to create a login account and then you can go in and fiddle with Wikipedia. You can add things. Now there are editors that will go back and check those things, but you could add some funny things if you want. And every now and then, Funny things get added to Wikipedia, so you can't always trust it. But here's one of my favorite examples. Any uh, Dallas Cowboy fans in the room? This was uh, 2017. This uh, was screenshots, and if you can see on the big screen here, AT and T Stadium. This was the Wikipedia page. If you look down here to the owner, it says Aaron Rodgers because Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, at least for now, um, he has a bad habit of beating the Cowboys at their own field. And then also over here, someone went to the effort of saying Aaron Rodgers Stadium, formerly Cowboys Stadium or AT&T Stadium, and some information. And then on this panel over here, there's the uniforms of the Cowboys. And then the personnel, the owner is Aaron Rodgers. So this is just illustrative of that. You can't always take Wikipedia At its face value, you have to kind of check these things out, but it is a good source and it's a it's a free resource available to you. So just keep that under advisement. All right. So I mentioned that you also want to look at geography in place and there's many maps that you can find online. This is from a program I purchased years ago called Logos, L-O-G-O-S dot com. But this gives us a little snapshot of the region. Modern day Israel, you can see where Jerusalem is, you can see where Egypt is. The space in between is just desert. So nobody went across that desert or they would die. So what they would do is they would go up, you follow the colorful trail here, they would go up in the Tigers, Euphrates River Valley. And so what this is, is this is a historical timeline of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is the son of a guy named Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar rebels against the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is starting to fracture and fall apart. Empires rise and fall based upon the strength of their leadership. And so what happens is that the leadership of Assyria, which is kind of that um, peach colored region, Assyria begins to falter. And Nabopolassar is amongst the many who rebel within. We don't know much about Nabopolassar. We don't know if he was from Babylon. We don't know if he was from Chaldea or or, we do not know. But what we do know is he was pretty good at organizing people. And he had a very talented son named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was even more talented than the old man. Nebuchadnezzar was a great warrior. And as a young man, he finds himself in Carchemish. In Carchemish, you can see it flagged. It's almost towards the very top here. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up here. Dad's down in Babylon ruling and Nebuchadnezzar's up in Carchemish because the Egyptians, as the Assyrian empire begins to falter, they think it's a good time to grab some land. Maybe we can help the Assyrians is why Pharaoh Necho went up there. But really it was probably to gain a control over that remnant of the Assyrian empire. And so Pharaoh ends up in Carchemish and Nebuchadnezzar ends up in Carchemish And Nebuchadnezzar cleans Pharaoh's clock, wipes him out, wipes out his soldiers. Nebuchadnezzar, tail between the legs, begins to wander back to Egypt. Now there is a verse that talks about the way to the battle. And this is in 2 Kings 23. It says, while Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River to Carchemish. It doesn't say Carchemish, but we know it because that's where Carchemish was and that's where the battle ends up, to help the king of Assyria, to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out. And Josiah, this is kind of a sad story. Josiah is like the last great king. He's a godly guy. He's a good guy. And Josiah, we don't know why, goes out and says, hey, Pharaoh, get off my land. Go back to where you were. And Necho says, leave me alone. I'm not fighting with you. But Josiah insists And Josiah ends up killed at Megiddo, which is also, if we go back to the map over here, you can kind of see it, Megiddo. And so Josiah dies, he ends up back in Jerusalem. Pharaoh continues on, he ends up getting defeated. He comes down back to Egypt and on his trail is part of the Babylonian army. Nebuchadnezzar goes home because dad dies a few weeks after the battle. And he secures control. And so for the next handful of years, he's making a foray into what's called the the Levant, or we would think of as the Holy Land, which is Syria and Jordan and Lebanon and modern-day Israel. And so eventually there's this kind of of tug-of-war and the kings of Jerusalem don't exactly know which side to go with. Egypt's closest Babylon seems to be more powerful, and they at first are a vassal state of Babylon, and they're paying tribute to Babylon. And then they decide, hey, they're so far away, let's let's refocus on Egypt. Bad move. Egypt never really regains a powerful footing again. So when they decide to bet on Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, his forces tear down the wall of Jerusalem. They tear down the palace. They tear down the temple. They break up all the temple artifacts and ship them back to Babylon. That's probably when Daniel ends up exported back to Babylon as well as King Jehoiakim and all these other folks as well. And so with that in mind, on the heels of all that, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And I just want you to feel the the emotion, the, the, the moment, for these folks. Consider yourself amongst the the group of people that were in Jerusalem, the holy city, and your general attitude was, hey, we got the temple, it's our lucky rabbit's foot. As long as the temple's here, we're safe. God's gonna protect his temple as long as we're close to the temple. And instead, young men are slaughtered in the temple. And so your world's turned upside down. It's destroyed. And you get this letter. Yeah, people who are holding worship services telling you everything's gonna be okay. You're gonna end up going back. Everything's gonna be rebuilt. Babylon's gonna fall. And you get this letter. And Jeremiah says, don't listen to them. You're stuck there. Make the best of it. But the Lord has still got his eye on you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're not bad plans. They look bad right now. But there's gonna be some good from this. And and this this begs a question, why did this all happen? Why did God let this happen? And sometimes we ask this question when bad things happen to good people. And many times we don't know. Truthfully, there are many times we're like, well, it's just life on this globe. We can't fully answer all those questions. But in this instance, we might go, why did God let his chosen people get hauled off? Some people would even go so far to say, well, God wasn't that good because obviously he wasn't as good as Marduk, the God of the Babylonians. Marduk seems more powerful. He owns way more land. So why would I trust Jehovah when I can trust Marduk? And there's no doubt some people converted. There were people of Judah that got to Babylon and they're like, you know, not only for um, political purposes or business purposes, but quite honestly, I don't, I'm not trusting Jehovah anymore. Might as well sign up for Marduk, not to be confused with Marmaduke, the cartoon of a big dog. And I know, I only bring that up because half of you were thinking of it. Half of you are too young to know who Marmaduke is, but you know, now you know. And so this is a tip that would be very helpful. As you approach scripture, let the Bible interpret the Bible. In other words, when possible, use other parts of scripture to help you understand the parts that are a little confusing. Can't always do that. But there are many times where you can. You can get into a part and you can go, now why did this happen this way? Why did God let the people get carted away like this? And this is an instance, going back to the idea of using a reference Bible, when you get into a certain section of the Bible, you can can often, if you have a reference Bible or, or use an online resource that has a reference Bible in it, you can oftentimes pull up other verses that speak to this subject or speak to the same occasion from another angle. And, and here is an interesting little piece of all this. There are overlapping books in the Bible, just like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John cover the gospels. That is the stories of Jesus in slightly different angles, but oftentimes cover the same terrain. Well, there's two books or four books in the Old Testament that do this as well. First and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. First and second Kings are historical. First and second Chronicles are historical with commentary. So the Chronicles, whoever was the chronicler, some think it was Ezra. We don't know for certain, doesn't identify himself. But in in second Chronicles, we have a bit of an explanation for why God allowed this to happen. It says this, this is uh, chapter 36, starting with verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, this is explaining why all this happened, sent word to them through his messengers or his prophets again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against His people, and there was no more remedy. He brought up against them the king, uh, the king of the of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. See, they thought that sanctuary was going to protect them. They went in there and thought, surely, like there'll be some sort of like laser from heaven or from the temple. So if we're backed up to the sanctuary, we're going to be okay. And God is not your lucky rabbit's foot. There isn't some sort of device, whether it's a cross or whatever. There isn't some lucky rabbit's foot that you can put your faith in. You can't put your faith in a building. You can't put your faith in an image. You put your faith in God. And so they back up into the temple and it doesn't work out for them. They're killed there. uh, And he didn't spare the young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the King and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value. There he carried into Babylon, the or into exile, exile to Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were complete in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And so um, what's happening here is that Chronicles is like a commentary on that historical event. Now I want you to imagine Just go back uh, uh, just a bit here. It said the Lord, the God of their ancestors sent word to them through his messengers again and again. Imagine you you meet a family and they're in need and uh, you have an abundance. And so you feel joy in sharing your abundance with the family, cover their rent, provide food, and you're glad to do it. And you like these people. You like being with them. But something weird happens, and, and they avoid you. And uh, they don't return your phone call or your emails, or your text messages. And after a while, um, when you drive by the house you rented them, hoping to catch them out in the yard, you see like there's just an old car up on blocks in the front yard. Everything's unkempt. You know, the shutter's sort of fallen down. There's a broken window. Everything just looks terrible. And you've, you're paying the bills for this. And it looks awful. And so um, you don't want to make it awkward. So you, you have some mutual friends and you send, you send the friend over to kind of just check in on them. And they're blown off and they're treated poorly. Do you keep paying? Do you keep footing the bill for that? Do you feel good about your generosity? Now, incidentally, I'm making no, <laughs> some people are doing math here and thinking, oh, this is about uh, government assistance. It is not, this is not a political statement whatsoever. I'm trying to draw a personal connection where, where you find yourself in a role called patron in the best of sense, you're providing loving care. And instead you're seeing, um, You're seeing this get, they're blowing you off. They're not taking, they're not good stewards of the responsibility that they have. They're being, and and it gets worse. They become jerks to everybody around them. And anyone who comes and tries to approach them, they either get made fun of or maybe even beat up. Do you continue footing the bill? Of course not. We would not do that. If you continue to do it, you need to go to a Monday night class we call boundaries because you have no business just throwing money at people who don't appreciate it. Again, no political statement here. I mean, there's no underlying message. I'm just at the surface. This is what I'm getting at. So here's God who gives them a promised land. It's a land he said was flowing with milk and honey. And in the Jordan River Valley, it was lush and he was glad to do it. It was a land they didn't pay for. He paid for, for them. And he expected gratitude and fidelity and faithfulness, worship, and they blew him off. So why would he continue to protect them? See, one of the interesting things at growing up in church, I was told like Israel, modern day Israel, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I have been all over the United States. You know what a land flowing with milk and honey is? Ohio. The dirt is perfect for growing stuff. They get just enough water. They have a lousy college football team that I can't stand. I'm from Michigan, okay, you know? It's a a a local joke. That's a land flowing with milk and honey. It is lush and green in the summer You can grow anything in its soil. Israel, modern day Israel is part desert. There's a little river valley and it's highly dependent upon God's generosity for protection. And in that era, it was on the highway between roving empires. At any given moment, if God just withdraws his support from the nation, gravity takes its effect. If he doesn't protect Jerusalem and the people of Judah and the people of Israel, eventually someone comes and carts them off. And that's exactly what happened. It's not terrific land. It's good land that a loving God provided so that the people would learn to depend upon him and to be faithful to him. Because if they were faithful to him, he would gladly return the favor. But one-sided faithfulness, that's rarely good for anyone. And so what the chronicler tells us is that the Lord sent people and he warned them. He's like, hey, get with the program here. Why are you bowing down to gods that didn't bring you into this land? Why are you bowing down to gods that can't bring you rain? Why are you bowing down to the gods who don't make anything fertile? They're non-gods. They're demons at best. They're They're nothing at worst, or maybe demons at worst and nothing at best, but they aren't gods. I'm God, I am here to provide for you. And the people heard the messages from guys like Jeremiah and they said, meh, we don't care. We're indifferent. And so, and so the Lord's wrath was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. He brings Nebuchadnezzar. And you can kind of, I mean, here's what's fascinating. It starts with, this is God's sovereign hand behind everything. There's an Assyrian empire in distress and a guy named Nabopolassar who grows in power, who has a son that's way more talented, who ends up just at the right time ascending to the throne. You can kind of see all the while, God could just turn the switch just ever so slightly. Nebuchadnezzar could focus further north. He could go into modern day Turkey and decide, I'm gonna see what's over in that territory. But instead, the people insist in their stubbornness and they refuse to get right with God. And so the chronicler goes on, he says this in verses 22 and 23, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and also put it into writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you, go home, and the Lord their God be with them. Now, here's what's really fascinating about Cyrus the Great. You can actually Google him and learn quite a bit about him. Here is what's called the Cyrus cylinder. And uh, I chose this picture, because you can see how big it is. It's in this person's hands. And it's a cylinder because there's little indentations. And what they would do is they'd take a wet clay tablet and they would roll the cylinder, and so it was the original photocop here. It was the original. They could send it places and that. If, he, if this went into a bag, went on a horse, went to another town, and they rolled it onto a wet tablet there, that would be a fax. <laughs> or an email. This was significant technology. And this cylinder was found under the wall in Babylon when they were doing some excavations. And, and the British were like, it's... It's ours now. So it's in the English, the British Museum in London. And that's awesome. But this tells us this on this, you can Google this thing too. And Wikipedia has a page on this and it'll tell you that Bible believing people insist that this is backing up the Old Testament story. And some, this is a good example where you have to just use critical thinking skills. Some would say, uh, hey, what he said was all people can go back to their homeland and worship their gods as they see fit. And so what's interesting is Cyrus the great in this particular cylinder is considered one of the first statements on human rights. This thing was the first thing that we know of actual official documentation that says, we don't care how you worship, just worship the way you want. Now in our country, this is one of our rights within our bill of rights we can worship as we see fit. Many places in the world today, you cannot do that. Many points of time, you could not do that. But this, all those years ago, that noble idea that said, I'm not going to tell you how to worship or who to worship or what to worship. You go home. Now I mentioned that there's a Wikipedia page for this thing. And one of the criticisms is, well, by believing Christians, they'll quote Chronicles or whatever, and they'll say that this is what it says, but the cylinder doesn't say that exact word. It doesn't say, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and all that, and it doesn't. This particular scroll does back up the idea that people were allowed to go home, and amongst them were people of Hebrew descent, and some of them stayed put. Somewhere like Babylon's my home, I'm staying put, and many did, but many went home. And you can pick up that story in Ezra, you can pick up that story in Nehemiah. And so, that kind of back to where we started from. Can you use this verse at a wedding? And some of you, this room is big enough and there's enough people, some of you may be like, I hope so, because we did, and it was like exile actually. but the question is, and so, and you might be at a wedding in the future, and someone might read this verse, and you have to wrestle with: Do I interrupt the wedding? I mean, the minister did give permission. If there's any reason these two should not be joined, maybe their choice of scripture is a good reason. So some would say, no, you should not read this at a wedding unless your view of marriage is some form of exile, prisonment, abandonment, or unless your relationship is already full of conflict and you want to double down on that, right? And some people will joke about it. I've made the joke. I, tonight I made the joke. like, Yeah, if your wedding is like, sort of like you've gone off into exile or the wilderness, yeah, but it's perfect. So some would say no, but actually some would say, well, if you interpret it correctly, then you could broadly apply it. So how do we interpret it? Well, there's a simple way of interpreting it. Even when it looks like other people are in control, God's in control. That's kind of the general gist of that chapter. Even when it looks like everything's flying out of control, even when it looks like trouble is is staring you in the face, There is a sovereign God and he, and now his plans, just to be clear, the interpretation is for those people in that time. They're not for us, but this is where the Bible is this marvelous book because we can't interpret it exactly word for word as those people in Babylon did all those years ago, but we can apply it. Can't we? And so we can look at it and say, God in his good and sovereign hand had a redemptive purpose for those people in that place. And I trust that he has that for me too. And so others would say, yeah, you can, if you understand that regardless of circumstances, God's in control. It isn't my boss. It isn't the employer. It isn't the economy. It's not the political world. And God's redemptive purposes can turn anything good. There's other applications you can make. You can make applications outside of a wedding to this verse of, hey, regardless of what nation you live in, whether it's the United States or whether it's China, you could say, Lord, help, help my nation prosper so I prosper. Help, uh, help our leaders make wise decisions. If the people were essentially asked to pray for Nebuchadnezzar, and incidentally, Peter says, pray for Caesar, Caesar, Caesar later has Peter uh, put to death, but Peter says pray for the emperor or pray for Caesar, then what this reminds us of is that God's always at work behind the scenes. Sometimes it's right in front of us and sometimes it's behind the scenes. And so we land the plane where we took off and the principle is this, is that a, a verse can be broadly applied, but you should interpret it narrowly you should find out what that verse meant to that writer, to those people in that historical period of time, in their geography, within the genre of that literature and understand that first. And then from it, you can make all kinds of applications. Well, I'm grateful for your attention and the time that you've given. And this week or this, uh, this next week we'll, we'll hit another verse. And I won't tell you what it is. You're just going to have to come back next week and find out. Would you just stand and I'm going to close this in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thanks for this fine group of people right here and online. Thanks for the opportunity you've given us to open up the Bible and learn a little. And hopefully we've had fun in the process and we've come away feeling a bit stronger and more confident that you have equipped us and given us some tools so we can really understand what you have written for us. And so help us hear it, help us understand it, absorb it. Most of all, help us live it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Have a great night.